literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? speaking here. Uh, welcome to, uh, I think it's episode six of my podcast, Love That Album. Happy to have your company uh, and hope you've been enjoying the podcast this far, however you've chosen to download it. And uh, I'm really very, very excited here today because um, on episode six, I have with me as my special guest, Mr. Bill Pinnell. Hello, Bill. Hi, Morris. Hello, everyone. Uh, it's, Thanks uh, for listening. Oh, indeed. Uh, it's wonderful to have uh, Bill here. We're going to be um, Having as the main focus of today's show, the main album uh, will be under discussion will be uh, The Doors, L.A. Woman, their final album, and um, it's the 40th anniversary of the album, Bill. It is, Morris, yeah, and as a consequence of that, there will be, which I'm sure you'll elaborate on lately, uh, a new deluxe edition mm. release of the album. It was re-released um, at least in the last four or five years, I think, with maybe some extra bits and pieces that you can also tell us about. Mm. But th- there'll be a lot of uh, fuss made about the um, the re-release of the final album, and there's already been a DVD released of the making of um, L.A. Woman, which I've been able to, to have a look at. It's quite revealing. Nothing other people probably don't already know that are great fans of the world, but there will be a lot of discussion about that record this year, mm. and um, we'll be contributing and adding to that tonight. Indeed. Um, but before we get to that, we'll uh, start off the program in the usual way that I like to do, and that's to uh, discuss uh, albums uh, that um, myself and uh, whoever is hosting with me has been listening to lately. So, Bill. Well, when you asked me if I contributed to this, that, that was that was going to be fun to do. But ra- rather than just assemble some of the a, a recent um, albums for me to listen to, I've just selected some that were my favourite my most listened to albums of this year, I always find it impossible to have a best five albums. I mean, what, what does that mean? Mm. You know, I'm not a musician, I can't write a song, I don't do anything that's creative. <laughs> but I can listen to music and I can just remember albums that gave me tremendous pleasure throughout the year and ones that I listened to the most of all. So using that criteria, the, the ones that I'm going to mention today to you and, and to your listeners... Um, the first one is from a New York band called Hazmat Modine. I've got no idea where the name came from. They've only released um, two albums. I think they formed about 2005 or 2006, so they don't seem to outstay their welcome. Their current album is called um, Cicada, as in the one that crawls along and lays its eggs and stuff. Yeah, that sort of Cicada. Mm. Now, the lineup is what makes the band interesting for a start. Um, I guess the most prominent member of the band is the singer who writes most of the songs called Wade Schumann, who also plays harmonica, but he uses effects on the harmonica. There'll be foot pedals we'll use to give it uh, different sounds. Then there's a second harmonica player, so they're part of the front line of this um, terrific band. There's a trumpet and flugelhorn player, uh, a sax player, two guitar players, a drummer, 
no bass player but a tuba player. Wow. Now, the music covers just so many different styles. They fuse blues, jazz, calypso, ska. There's elements of world music. There's a couple of really strong Captain Beefheart references musically Mm. on the new record. They use uh, natural sounds like birds squawking or crickets chirping or something in between tracks sometimes. But it's hard to put into words how appealing... Um, the music is because it's, it's so eclectic that you'll have to just check it out for yourself. It has Matt Modine of the band and uh, Cicada is the new record. Uh, the Cronus Quartet guest on a couple of songs. Natalie Merchant is also on a song and she just sings in duet with Wade Schumann. It might be the last track on the album which is a quiet um, semi-acoustic piece. So they're one of my discoveries over the last couple of years and one of my most listened to albums of um, this year. Now, do you want to give me one of yours now? We're going to oh, yeah, we can alternate. Yeah, sure. Okay, uh, so an album that I know um, a lot of people would have been looking forward to, uh, and um, I think it's the first one in quite a number of years, was for uh, Tom Waits, his uh, new album, Bad As Me. Now, um, as, as wonderful and creative as his songwriting is and his, his uh, distinctive style, over, especially over the last, I don't know, 30 years or so, um, yet... There are still some surprises to be had, at least for me, uh, on on this album. Uh, and he, I don't know, if it, it might make sense to musicians out there, not sure to anyone else, but he has this great knack of his band sounding loose and tight at the same time. Not so tight like session musicians where it's all soulless, but that each musician knows what the other one's thinking, and yet there's something really beautifully uh, sloppy about it and I mean that in the best possible way uh, two of uh, uh, two wonderful guitarists on the on the album who you may have heard of one of them is named I think is Keith Richards um, and uh, the other one David Hidalgo of uh, Los Lobos uh, both make significant contributions to the album as usual as well as the uh, usual assortment of uh, uh, band members of uh, Waits uh, associates, including I think his son Casey Waits playing on uh, drums and percussion on some of the tracks. Uh, so the, overall, I mean, there's there's a mixture of uh, bluesy and rough uh, type songs, very percussive in a lot of cases, um, as he likes to do. Uh, and yet, uh, Waits does tender really, really well. Um, there's uh, and and he decides lyrically, especially like over the last few years or the last couple of albums. He's um, decided to uh, make some political statements here. So we have a couple of songs, one called Raised Right Men, uh, where he's uh, sort of rallying on against people's uh, uh, moral corruption, as he sees it. Um, And musically, uh, Raised Right Men sort of has a bit of a um, musical tribute stabbing, I think, whatever you want to call it, at uh, Nick Cave's song, Raised Right, uh, Red Right Hand. Um, that same sort of ag organ melody that uh, permeates through the um, the solo bits in Red Right Hand reminds me of this in uh, this Tom Waits tune. Um, another great song from the album, Talking at the Same Time, uh, has uh, basically you know puts forward the notion that uh, the world is in the state it's in because no one's actually listening to anyone else. Everyone thinks that their perspective is the only correct perspective. So he's sort of uh, making his uh, thoughts known on that. 
Uh, and yet, as I mentioned before, it's not all it's not all political. Um, there are there are some beautiful tender moments. Uh, maybe even a, dare I say it, a lusty moment. There's this beautiful song on it called "Kiss Me," which has the fabulous line, "I want you to kiss me like a stranger once again." Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just that really brought my attention to it. Um, and musically, if you've sort of lament, even if you've liked Tom Waits, but you've lamented the fact that he hasn't written a song that sounds quite like it belongs on his early albums written for um, Asylum Records. Uh, this is as close as he's come in 30 years to doing a song that sounds like it belongs on those early Asylum Records. Absolutely beautiful, and um, I, 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 was, I was really happy to hear that. Um, look, I could go on and on about this album, but um, uh, I think this is just supposed to be a short intro to uh, the albums we've been listening to. So, yeah, Tom Waits, Bad As Me, uh, worth your time and effort. Now, I heard the first song released off the album, probably on Triple R, and the vocals sounded hysterical. Mm. Is, is that is that typical of the other vocals? I mean, it was way over the top, even Look, for Tom Waits. Tom Tom Waits does, I think, a similar thing to what Bob Dylan does. Is he, he sort of decides which persona he wants on any given song. Uh, so yeah, I, I remember, you know, like um, if you take a, a Bob Dylan album like Nashville Skyline, uh, he, he doesn't sound like he does on any other album. Um, he, he has in, you know, he has these different personas, but Tom Waits will do multiple personas on the one on the one record. And so there's the uh, the bar fly uh, that we know of old. There's the um, uh, the very choppy, rough sort of singer. Um, I don't know words can't describe this, but um, but yeah, certainly he has at least two or three different vocal personas on this album and uh, something to please everyone. I think the one that he doesn't do and he can't do anymore is uh, actually where he sings in tune. I don't know if you're, uh, if you're a fan out there of his, uh, uh, one of his very first albums. It's certainly my favourite, The Heart of Saturday Night. And that's probably the album where, more so than any other Tom Waits album, he actually doesn't sound like Tom Waits. He actually sounds like he's singing in tune. And I don't think he's ever made another <laughs> record like that. So that persona's not on this record, but certainly all the other uh, ones that he has are in uh, full force. And it's uh, lyrically intelligent and uh, musically beautiful. And, and yeah, if you're, if you're a Waits fan and if you're a fan of Waits with melody, because uh, I, I know he's had a couple of albums where he's sort of accentuated uh, on the percussive side, this is far, uh, has far less in common with Bone Machine and maybe far more in common, like maybe a cross between Heart Attack and Vine and Mule Variations. So um, that's uh, if you like that style of weights, then you'll love this album. All right. Mm. Um, an album that was recorded live in April of 2010 was released earlier this year by Joan Armitrading live at the Royal Albert Hall. And when I first heard um, the album on, on, on the CD, there's 15 songs... That was really appealing. I, I, I loved revisiting the old songs um, with her songs like um, Show Some Emotion All the Way From America, Call oh. Me Names, Me, Myself, I. I was actually going to ask whether Show Some Emotion, that's yeah, my all-time favourite that, that, that opens the album. And Love and Affection with one of the best lines ever in a love song. I'm not in love, but I'm open to persuasion. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I listened to the album, there were some really interesting musical things happening. There was a song called Into the Blues with this distorted blues guitar on. So when I looked inside my CD to see who the guitar player was, it was Joan Armitrade. Mm. The guitar playing is extraordinary. Then I discovered there was a DVD component. So I watched the concert and that enhanced my appreciation so much more 
um, of the the CD. Got a three piece band. Who, one bloke plays uh, that plays drums, also plays saxophone and keyboard player, hmm. and a bass player called John Giblin, who's on lots of fusion albums that I've got at home. For want of a better word, uh, an English bass player. But it's an extraordinary album. Her her connection with her band is great. The audience love her. She's a great singer. She's got to be, I guess, in her early 60s now. And she's really in her prime. She's had the most extraordinary career that spans, what, three decades now. Um, she's a recipient of the Ivan Novello Award and an MBE from the Queen. doesn't make her a great singer, but I'm just adding those <laughs> things in to say that at least a female is being appreciated um, by the people who give those things to mostly to males, mm. for whatever different reason it might be. And she was included in in um, VH1's list of the most influential women in rock. So she lives up to all of those accolades in what I think is just a terrific album called Live at the Royal Albert Hall, released on CD and DVD. And if you're watching her for the first time, just watch closely at her, at her command of the stage. She's quietly spoken, doesn't need to jump around, no histrionics, but she owns that stage. And her guitar playing is absolutely extraordinary. And how's her voice nowadays? Her voice is terrific. Her voice is great. It's even better than when she was a younger woman singing those wow. songs, I, I think. And um, there were some songs I haven't heard before that I really liked after two or three playings. Mm. It's a record I've gone back to over and over and will continue to do. Fantastic. Um, all right. So I guess I'll come my turn. Uh, Van Walker is a... Um, songwriter who I've only sort of really become aware of just in the last uh, two to three weeks. I'd heard his name mentioned. He was referred to, uh, he, he was name-checked in a song uh, called Saved by uh, Melbourne songwriter Chuck Jenkins uh, on his last album. Um, but uh, I was uh, down in a CD shop in Melbourne in the last couple of weeks and they were playing this over the uh, store stereo system uh, an album called Underneath the Radar now Van Walker is I'd say a songwriter in the Mick Thomas tradition uh, for those of you um, who uh, live outside of Australia uh, Mick Thomas uh, for many years uh, fronted a band called Weddings Parties Anything before they uh, split up in the late 90s they still occasionally get together I think once a year uh, to do some uh, reunion gigs just to keep it informal but um, uh, this guy, Van Walker, writes a song very much in the Mick Thomas vein, which is uh, a, a very good storyteller, uh, strong on the melody, and um, a folksy, folky poppy sort of thing, which I guess a lot of songwriters can be attributed with those uh, with that genre type and can be a little bit ordinary. But Van Walker is an extremely strong storyteller. This, this album is called Underneath the Radar, 2008 to 2010, and he's been... In a day and age where a lot of artists are recording one album every two to three years, um, he's been extremely prolific with five albums in two years. Um, and so this is uh, uh, sort of a, a bit of a taste, a bit of a, an anthology of uh, the best songs from those five albums. And uh, the quality is just extraordinary. Uh, he's originally, I think, from Tasmania. Uh, and... Yeah, as I said, a great storyteller. Just you know, just to name check about two or three of the songs. The album opens up. Um, he's with, with a, a very wordy sort of song, but nothing feels out of place. It's called Wild Grass, and it starts off sounding like it's going to be a children's song uh, about you know, a rabbit who's uh, making friends with a fish in the stream, and then goes off into the forest and 
make friends with all these other animals and it sounds like it's going to be a little bit watership down like but uh, once it gets to the chorus you realize it's very uh, much um, an adult concern uh, he, he um, it, it's being told the singer's perspective he um, uh, describes himself in the chorus as a drunk little rabbit waiting by a stream uh, since his partner left uh, left him um, so it, it's not really a children's song but it's but it's a nice analogy nice metaphor that he uses um, the title song underneath the radar uh, is a very poppy tune um, about uh, it could be about van walker himself being out of mainstream focus and music is the only thing that keeps him sane uh, sane uh, and he, he sings the only thing that keeps me sane is uh, is playing music not the game um, and uh, I should also mention just as a little aside there I was playing the, the album in the last couple of days uh, and uh, my son Max was saying to him that it reminded him of uh, the music of Warren Zevon and I hadn't thought about it before but certainly maybe not the folksy songs so much but the pop songs on this album do have a bit of a Zevon flavour so I uh, I um, thought I'd make mention that was a rather good observation. Um, and probably one more song I'll make mention from the album, uh, Murder of a Mally Girl. Uh, a, a really interesting story here. Uh, the singer tells of his regret of a series of events, you know, one event following like another, uh, like a series of dominoes. Um, basically, uh, this series of events lead, that led to the murder of a teenage girl that if he'd only had the nerve to ask her to dance at, at some dance um, uh, it could have all been avoided but things happened he didn't have the nerve she went off with someone else and um, the lyrics are incredible I, I sort of found it was a bit interesting though that the song is like in a rather bouncy major key uh, right sort of very out of uh, kilter with, um, uh, with with the lyric but um, yeah I, I guess it's a it's a thing that a lot of songwriters like to do from time to time is have a contrast between what they're singing and how, how they're playing. And it still somehow seems to work. But, um, yeah, Van Walker, Underneath the Radar, 2008 to 2010. I believe he uh, plays a, a fair bit around Melbourne. So um, if you live in Melbourne, um, search him out. If you don't, uh, look him up on the internet and order a copy. It's uh, an album that uh, you should enjoy. Bill? Well, this is a more recent one that I've been listening to a lot since it first came out, maybe a couple of months ago now. Um, by Ry Cooter called Pull Up Some Dust and Sit Down. It's a great album. And um, eclectic's the word for Ry Cooter. He can play and is recorded with just about any fretted instrument you can think of. Um, the styles of music, this is too many to talk about right at this moment. A lot of his career, he's, he's turned 65 this year, so a lot of his career that's got to be close to a 50-year career now includes lots and lots of collaborations, lots and lots of movie soundtracks among them, performance, Long Riders, Paris, Texas, Crossroads, Cocktail, and many, many more. And the new record, which is his 15th solo album, I reckon Rivals may be the best thing he's ever recorded mm. as, a, as a solo performer. Now, he uses the Depression era, the American Depression era, as a backdrop, uh, plays in a sort of a Tex-Mex swing and bluesy style but the song is very potent and they focus on America's fragile economy religion Mexican immigration politics is a song called John Lee Hooker it's about John Lee Hooker running for president mm, which mm. Just has to be heard to be believed he even he, sounds like John Lee Hooker he when he's singing it yeah, yeah he does yeah purposely I'm sure the mm. song's about war big business race crooked banks in a song 
to do with the Crooked Bank. Jesse James actually leaves heaven, which is interesting that he's leaving heaven, <laughs> to come back and, in inverted commas, reform a Crooked Banker. So that's the thought put behind a lot of these songs. The music's filled with uh, the spirit of Woody Guthrie and... Um, this is protest music USA, but unfortunately it's also protest music Australia. So it's it's a very potent album, and just sees Rykuda back now doing what he uh, what he does best. Mm. Okay, I think uh, probably the last one I want to mention that I've been listening to of late is um, uh, another artist who I've only recently discovered. But you know, I'm, I'm always doing this, discovering people well after the fact, well after other people have uh, gone and heard about them. Uh, I mean, I'd heard the name, but hadn't heard the music of a, a guitar player from uh, Perth, I think, well, certainly from Western Australia, called Dom Mariani. Uh, now, he has, uh, I think it's a new anthology uh, called Popside Guitar, and Dom Mariani is of the uh, power pop guitar school of songwriting, and um, He's been in quite a number of bands over the last, I don't know, 20, 25 years. Um, I made mention uh, that I bought this album to um, uh, our, our friend Jeff Jenkins, and uh, he was very, very happy to hear that um, I uh, hooked onto this. If you like uh, the music of, uh, of Alex Chilton and Big Star, then you'll love Don Mariani, um, uh, another fellow who I know. Uh, said that he was probably scarily uh, over-the-top influenced by uh, Alex Chon, but I can't see that as a bad thing. So um, possibly he, he's best known uh, in Australia for uh, a group that he was in, I think in the, the 80s, called The Stems out of Perth. But uh, he's done a bunch of other bands, and uh, this album, double album, con- uh, uh, compiles music from um, his group, the Don Mariani Three, uh, the Stems, uh, Stone Age Hearts. Uh, I don't think uh, uh, one of his early bands, The Ghost Starts, is represented represented here. I'm not sure whether they recorded or not, but they're not here. Um, but uh, some really top power pop songs. Certainly, if you like, uh, as well as Big Star, if you like, if you're um, into the Nuggets compilation that uh, Lenny K put together, the the original or the box set, that power pop '60s. Slightly psychedelic, but you know, heavy on the wah wah pedal, heavy on the guitar, and great, great pop hooks and harmonies. You'll like this. Um, uh, one of the great Don Mariani three songs on this is called "Just Like Nancy," singing about a girl who looks and moves just like Nancy Sinatra. Um, some great songs from the Stems, which is sort of '60s psychedelia. Um, For always is a song that sort of reminds me of uh, another great band originally. I think out of uh, WA with the Hootagaroos out of. Uh, Western Australia? Yep, yep. So it um, must be a big power pop scene out there in the 80s. Um, or were they Brisbane? No, I, th- I think they might have been out of WA. Yeah. Um, for always, a uh, song from the, the uh, stems that sounds fairly hoodoo-guru-esque. Uh, and another great song called uh, Make You Mine, which sort of reminds me a little bit of um, the Yardbirds. Mm. Um, so uh, they, they, they do like, he likes his blues as well. Um, uh, some other uh, another great band that he put together was called the Sum Loves, um, and you know, songs like Melt and Girl Soul also have that great pop psychedelia type thing going there. So um, uh, if you've uh, if you've been familiar with any of uh, the music of Mariani, you won't need uh, too much for me to convince you to go search out this compilation Pop Side Guitar. And if you haven't heard 
uh, of him, then um, I'd urge you to go uh, search this album or this double CD out. It's uh, some really wonderful um, pop guitar gems on this. Any other albums you want to I'll just, bring we'll up? I'll just do one more. Uh, one of the world's greatest guitar players is a bloke from Melbourne called Ben Rogers, who has uh, a band called The Instrumental Asylum. It's a trio. Um, electric bass played by a girl, Nikki Scarlett, drummer Dennis Close, and the extraordinary Ben Rogers, whose influences are just so vast. Some would be Hank Marvin, mm. I reckon. Uh, Danny Gatton. Um, who else? Uh, the Ventures, um, JJ Kale, and his biggest influence, I think, is is Django Reinhardt. Mm. Now, after two um, rock instrumental albums, his new one. Now that the band aren't called the Instrumental Asylum; it's called the Ben Rogers Trio. There's Nikki Scarlett now playing double bass from his previous band. There's a girl playing um, violin, and the music is how if you just sat down somewhere in, in Paris in the in the 30s or 40s and listen to Django Reinhardt and Stephen Grappelli this is how it might have been the album's called Wind Farms of Your Mind you'll need to seek it out it hasn't got wide distribution but it's the Ben Rogers trio and uh, words won't be adequate today to describe just how great this this record is but if you can uh, look Ben up somewhere and just let me mention one more before I go Mm. it's by um, a young uh, Melbourne singer and songwriter who I first heard late in 2010 before her record actually got um, a legitimate release, but I played it so much last year. It was actually my one of my most listened to albums of 2010, and it's maintained that appeal to me right throughout 2011. The young girl's name is Bryony Morgan, and her album's called Invalids and Supermen. The album consists of Bryony songs, her voice, her acoustic guitar, and a snare drum. That's it. Um, seek it out, Invalids and Supermen by Bryony Morgan, one of the most exciting singer-songwriter albums I've heard in a long, long time. Mm. High praise indeed. All right. Um, well, cousin, actually. Oh, uh, <laughs> well, actually, <laughs> as long as I'm going to be here, oh, gosh, I, I think I, I'm going to have to do the nepotistic thing here, but only because it is such a wonderful track. Um, there's uh, going to be a new album coming out earlier on in the new year uh, from a Melbourne group called Textured Like Sun. and I saw them the other night. I yeah. saw Textured Like Sun. There was a showcase performance for a bloke called an English singer and songwriter who reminded me a bit of Paolo Nutini. Just in, in, in his voice, um, in, in his personality, appeals probably to the same audience. And his name is Ed Shehab, She Something, mm. who's got an album on the English chart at the moment. So I was invited to go and watch him do a showcase performance just for a. Uh, select audience. I snuck in through the back door, so no one saw me turn up there. <laughs> and um, they opened the, the night. Texture uh, like sun. Three of them. Yeah, they said that usually there are five piece. Yeah. Tonight there are three piece. The singer sat um, and played some amplified acoustic guitar. He was a keyboard player and electric guitar player. Mm. And it's just great that the people who organised that night, which would would have been Warner Music, and the people who uh, who published a big issue, they put on this show because apparently one of Ed what's his name's songs is to do with uh, street people and, okay. and their abilities to survive against the odds and so to have an unsigned band an unknown band play before 
a bloke who's got a chart album in the UK, like a top five album in the UK, I thought was a great idea. So, mm. yeah, I've got to see him. Well, Texture Like Sun is fronted by Mark Pearl, who I confess is my nephew. Um, but um, I wouldn't be uh, going at and mentioning this if it was if that was the only case. Um, I'm I'm exceptionally proud of him. Uh, this is um, this this song that's out at the moment. You can find it on YouTube. Probably download it uh, off iTunes. Uh, it's called Bottle, and um, uh, he, he's uh, he's done really really well with his songwriting here. It's a fantastic song. Great little clip. Uh, if you can look that up on on YouTube, but he's going to have an album out early on in the new year. But if you can, uh, search out uh, Bottle by Textured Like Sun on YouTube. All right, uh, we're nearly halfway, ha- halfway, half an hour into the show, and we haven't even um, started talking about The Doors, so uh, we're going to take a quick break, uh, and we'll be back in a moment to um, talk about The Doors. We'll be back shortly. When you're watching movies, are you sick of remakes, reboots, reimaginings, reinventions, and Reese Witherspoon? Are you fed up with movies where giant robots try to remake Enter the Dragon? Do you think that torture porn is vastly inferior to 1970s drive-in porn? Do you find Botox actresses with fake tits and action heroes with no chest hair a turn-off? Do movies where no single shot lasts more than two and a half seconds piss you off? Yeah, me too. That's why I do Paleo Cinema Podcast, a podcast for films more than 20 years old. So if you think the Cinturis is a guy and that Myrna Loy is a kind of metal, you need Paleo Cinema Podcast. Go to paleo-cinema.com and do yourself a favour. And we're back. Uh, Morris here, Bill Pennell there. And... um we're about to uh, have a bit of a chat about uh, The Doors. The purpose of this uh, podcast this time around was, is to talk about The Doors album, L.A. Woman, which is um, arriving at its 40th anniversary uh, this year. But uh, before we go into the album specifically, let's just talk a bit about the band itself. Now, I might be one of the few people out there who didn't actually go see the Oliver Stone film. I'm not a fan of Oliver Stone and... I've didn't heard. miss much. No, good. Yeah, that's that's what I've heard. One of the worst rock films ever made, really? in my opinion. Yep, no. yep. Um, I did read at the time the uh, Danny Sugarman book, No One Here Gets Out Alive, and found it a bit sensationalist, I guess, but... Well, given he was that, part that of the entourage. He was like a groupie yep. for the Doors, so you need to have that in mind when you read that book. Mm. There wasn't, I guess there wasn't much else at the time on the market, but uh, how did you find the book? Didn't nah, di- didn't 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 convince me of much. I I thought it was um, it was obviously written by someone who was just too much a part of what was going on. Couldn't see any faults. Couldn't couldn't be critical of a band that had a singer who was destructive. It was all the things that Morrison was. So no, I, I don't like a lot of rock books. Mm. Um, there's too, the, the, the author lots of times in those books is a denialist. And you need someone who's completely detached from it all, or someone like John Densmore, who wrote a book called Riders on the Storm, which I thought was a terrific book about the band that he was an integral part of. And that's one of the most believable books that I've read because 
John Densmore wasn't afraid to be critical of a man he really loved, mm. Jim Morrison, but he he was able to, to point out his faults and to, and to talk about his faults and the fact that his behaviour nearly destroyed the band. Mm. So that's far more credible than the Danny Sugarman book, which I didn't enjoy reading. But having said that, I didn't enjoy lots of parts of Cliff Richard's book either. I read that from cover to cover because he's also a denialist. Mm. We'll talk about that at another time, maybe. So rock books, they've got the same elements in just about every one. The women, the booze, the drugs, the stuff they got up to. So I'm not a huge fan of reading biographies by rock performers or about rock bands. I'd rather just listen to the music, enjoy the music, and occasionally find something that's just a bit more believable uh, in the text and then maybe think that that's what really happened. But I don't really care what really happened behind the scenes a lot because the music's the music and what they do is their own business. They're human. They don't need to be free of any sort of vices and stuff. So those things really, to me, aren't as important. They never will be as the music is. Well, so that's an interesting point you raised. Do you think it's completely uh, possible to detach the music from the events in someone's life because, you know, if, they, uh, if they're ingesting drugs or if they've had a hard upbringing or if they've had an easy upbringing or so, will that... Uh, possibly affect how the, how a songwriter writes or how a oh, performer performs. Oh, yeah, it could, performs. but it, it does. It, it wouldn't necessarily affect how the listener views that song. Look, mm. I haven't got any idea about what Katie Lang does in her private life, mm. and I'm a huge fan of her music. Her interpretations of other people's songs are some of the most believable I've heard. Her own songs are really powerful. I have got no idea about what makes Katie Lang tick, and I really don't want to know. Mm. And so, people that I know nothing about, their music is just as it credible to me as someone that I know came up the hard way or like Graham Parsons you know had lots of money and his parents were millionaires or whatever so it doesn't really matter and I, I'd rather not know because mm. sometimes when you love someone's music so much and you find out that they weren't the most likeable person that can taint your appreciation sometimes if you're not careful mm. so I don't really want to know I don't want to know what makes people tear I remember I was having a discussion well doing a, doing a podcast with uh, Jeff Jenkins a few weeks ago and um I think it was to him I made mention I'd recently read uh, a book called You Never Give Me Your Money uh, which was about the Beatles um, but not just another Beatles bio covering uh, their music and the events in their lives it more covered from the mid-period where they created Apple and how they got themselves into all financial poor entanglements and brought in Alan Klein and uh, how you know they were fighting each other. It was, it was, I mean, it was sad and scary, but it was a real, it was a fascinating tale, nevertheless. Uh, and one of the incidents that was brought up in the book, which I actually had heard about before, this is less to do with the business side of it. But while John Lennon, I think, was um, on his uh, so-called long weekend in uh, Los Angeles over seventy-three, seventy-four, uh, and he, you know, was drinking too much and got arrogant and. Uh, punched someone out in the bar, got into an argument, and he was a horrible, violent drunk. And the waitress, one of the waitresses in the in the bar, was quoted as saying, "It's not being punched that hurts; it's finding out that your hero was a real asshole." So um, I guess there's something there you like to say there. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's pretty much how I feel about that. So the less I know about people, sometimes the less chance there is of me not loving the music as mm, much. Mm. So I'll, I'll remain ignorant forever about people's <laughs> music I love. But then you can't help but you'll pick up something or read something about your favourite artist and then you'll file it away in your memory bank somewhere. But um, I don't need that to love the music so much. Mm, mm. Um, 
Now, about the time I started getting into the Doors was maybe you know the early eighties. Uh, I was a you know, teenager and growing up, and I, I think a, a mate of mine gave me um, what was then I don't know if the, well the the newest compilation that that had I think one in there during their actual existence, which oh no two. 13 and weird scenes inside the gold mine but um, this one the best of the doors is the first one to come out maybe in about 10 or 11 years at the time and now the, the, the market's littered with doors anthologies but this one you know, that had been given to me uh, by, by a friend who he didn't know whether I liked the doors or not but just sort of thought he'd try this see what you think and I remember being really hooked but um, the 80s sort of seemed to be more so than any other band I can think of a band who found huge success outside their actual lifetime. We're not just talking about a casual interest. They were sort of seen in a lot of people's eyes and the media as if they were a contemporary band. Is there anything that you sort of feel like that could explain that? Was it just good PR or was there something about the music that spoke to the people at the time? Well, the records have been re-released incessantly. There was about four years ago, it might have been the end, it might have been, maybe it was... Oh, 2007, the anniversary of the release of their first album, where the entire catalogue was re-released. Um, Raymond Zarek went around the world talking about the re-releases of all the albums and the little bits and pieces that were added to the, the pressings from, um, from 2007. There was the terrible movie we just talked about. And great music to sustain. People still talk about Led Zeppelin. Still, People still talk about the great bands that, only, that didn't last all that long. Well, the Doors only lasted from, what, 67 to, to 19... 70 on, on record well LA Woman came out right in 1971 so that's 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 not a long time really is it that's mm. four years and Led Zeppelin weren't around for all that long either when when, when you think about the bands that have been around as long as the Stones or, or the Searchers or <laughs> whoever celebrating their 50 years but you know what I mean so, so the Doors music was so powerful I think that there were there's going to be new generations discovering it all the time you'd probably play it for your kids and there'd be people listening to the show uh, at the moment that played it for their kids. So great music sustains, great music will always be appealing. Um, and I think that's what the Doors music has done for, for younger generations, people that have now got the internet, they can look up on, on YouTube, um, Jim Morrison performing with, with his band and, and see how charismatic he was. And so all those things get back to how powerful the music was. And mm. See, luckily for me, because I'm a bit senior to you, I can remember <laughs> listening to the first album, when, when it was 67, yeah, the album just so, called yeah. The Doors. And because they're, they're uh, a band with, with no bass player in the lineup, well, they did use a bass player in the studio, uh, Doug Luban played bass on a lot of their records. But it was interesting to see that they didn't have a bass player. And um, because... Nearly all the songs, I think, might have been one cover on the first song. Maybe "Backdoor Man" was a Willie Dixon song that, that a reasonably obscure one. So it was all their own material, and, and because there was so much great music coming out in 1967, week after week, a groundbreaking record would come out. Jimmy Hendrix, Pink Floyd, whoever it might have been. But listening to it right from the start um, got me in, and um, of course, the longer songs. When the music's over on the first one, the end on on the Strange Days record, they were fascinating too because. This, this was narration in, in rock songs. This, this, this was um, music that, that was almost improvised, like jazz music. So all those elements got to me. So I just followed them record after record and I went through the soft parade with the brass and the strings and the orchestral arrangements that, that didn't quite work on some. It was just a brave move by a band to, 
augment the guitar, bass and drum sound with other instruments. And so I was a huge fan right to the very end and what was so satisfying to me was that one of their great albums turned out to be the last one we're going to talk about in a few moments, mm. LA Woman. So what do you recall about um, how, how the albums were received in Australia? Oh, I can't recall because there were, there were no stations that probably played those albums in depth. I really can't remember. I just know that I played it in my bedroom and then got my brother, locked the bedroom door and made him listen to it um, with me. Luckily for me, he liked it. So I didn't hear it much on radio. And the, the station I was at at the time didn't program that sort of music in any sort of depth. We might have played the, the hit single off whatever album was out at that time. So it was actually me taking the time to listen to it myself. I got a pair of headphones for one of my early birthdays, listened to the music through headphones and just absorbed it myself. But I remember Light My Fire getting played because that was a, uh, a shortened version of, of the album cut and that was a hit. And, and there's other songs that, that were... There were probably some of their mediocre songs and were written for that particular purpose to get played on radio, that, but that became the least appealing song to me of probably all their records. Mm. But there was enough there. There was Jim Morrison's poetry and, and the words he used, particularly the romantic songs that he wrote where his choice of words sometimes were certainly very poetic um, um, to my ears. And their choice of covers every now and again I thought were interesting in it because I love blues music and roots music so much there their covers were always blues songs and then on one album on a later album called Morrison Hotel they used one of the greatest guitar players ever born Lonnie Mac to play bass mm. on the song uh, called Roadhouse Blues so there was a lot of things that appealed to me about their music and again I just didn't want to hear too much about Morrison's behaviour and his unprofessionalism and his selfishness and all those sorts of things because I thought you maybe it'll take my appreciation of the music but I was able to not had that happen this time anyhow and, and so the album still means as nice to me today as I did the first time I, um, I got to hear it. It's, it sort of annoys me a little bit that um, uh, it, it seems like you know, when we're reading up in, you know, in the paper or in you know, newspaper articles or you know, the focus has always been Morrison and, and you know, given, I mean, it's, it's a given he was a very charismatic front man and maybe even for the rest of the band they were quite happy to sort of stand behind him and yet the Doors were, you know, in the full sense of the word, a band. I mean, we had uh, Ray Manzarek, who had these strong classical leanings. Uh, Robbie Krieger was apparently originally like a flamenco guitarist, and on a song like Spanish Caravan opens up with a flamenco guitar pattern, uh, and Densmore was an absolutely you know, fantastic jazz drummer. Uh, and they sort of remind me, maybe not musically, but as an example of another band that did that sort of thing, taking these very different elements and making it work, you know, with a, as a cohesive whole as uh, England's Pentangle mm. featuring uh, Bert Yanch and uh, John Renborn, uh, you know, who were both avowed blues nuts and um, a great jazz rhythm section and Danny Thompson and Terry Cox and uh, a great singer who could sing anything in uh, Jackie McShee. Um, and another band who, you know, with in lesser hands, might not have worked, and the Doors might not have worked um, if uh, they hadn't been such accomplished musicians with a single goal. And then out the front stands uh, Jim Morrison, who I think probably saw himself more as a as a crooner, you know, maybe more in common with someone like Frank Sinatra than uh, with, than with the rock fraternity. Yeah, I don't, yeah, know, that, I, that I don't know about baritone. that. Yeah, I don't know about that. He's, I think he. I think he thought he was Elvis sometimes. He loved Elvis's music and mm. he loved the black singers, but he was a huge fan of Elvis. And, and look, the musicians live had to be able to improvise because 
you know, Morrison was so erratic, he'd roll around on the floor for five minutes, mm. or he'd, he'd do stuff that had nothing to do to the song at the time, and they'd just wait, they'd do the fills for him, and they'd just keep playing, like a jazz group would do, waiting for the soloist to come back and play a solo, mm. which they had to do. So they were extraordinary musicians, and they were so patient and so creative in filling in all the gaps that Morrison left by his bizarre behaviour on stage from time to time. Mm. In the studio, you could eliminate all those, all those things with, um, with editing. But on stage, they, they would have been great to watch because they would have played probably the songs differently every time mm. because Morrison wouldn't have performed the songs the same each time, which is great, but it's the parts where he, um, he lost the plot and they had to fill in and, and cover for him until the song got going again that I would have really admired them for. So I wonder how much of you know, his antics on stage were trying social experimentation on the audience, how much of it was just out of being genuinely drunk, how much of it was... Because he was, he just liked to have a laugh. I mean, well, he he he, was, he he knew he had a great power on stage. You know, rock singers have got a power over the audience, and he was charismatic, and he was all those things. And you know, I, I think he wallowed a bit in, in in his power to get an audience to react in a certain way. And and so maybe maybe that was just all part of the great magic of the band. And you know, w- while he did do all those things, he was a great songwriter. There's, there's no doubt about that. His songs have stood up today. Even the less commercial ones, like uh, Unknown Soldier and some of the other ones he wrote that were, that were pretty potent songs um, lyrically, and you know the the, the Oedipus, Oedipus part of um, the end of the end, and all those sort of things make, make him an, an exceptional songwriter. And the books of poetry that I've read, the books of prose that I've read, are really great reading. And so he was certainly a complex character, and they couldn't have survived without him. He'd be like the Rolling Stones without Mick Jagger, or like any great rock band that had a singer who just meant so much to them that he was irreplaceable, which Morrison was, because when he died they did two albums without him and of course the albums didn't sell. Now, I've, I've never he, heard he those. was irreplaceable. Have you, uh, have you listened yeah, to those albums? Yeah, what, what, are they, what are they like? Well, they're not very good because the singer who, who was uh, Ray Manjarek struggled through and you can't replace a singer like Jim Morrison and the second one was like, it was a bunch of session players that played, but there's a song that's so similar to Riders on the Storm called Ships with Sails and that's Riders on the Storm Part 2 which I think is on the album called Other Voices so if you're a Doors completist or just curious the albums are probably you can buy them for 10 bucks each probably at JB Hi-Fi they're, they're worth getting just to hear the Doors struggling on without the man who, who gave them that, that point of difference I guess mm. and um, so without him they wouldn't have survived and they knew that it was no good them saying listen if you stuff up one more time you're out of the band you know that that'd be suicide they, they would never do that you know that'd be the greatest instance of cutting off their nose despite their face in the history of rock and roll <laughs> so they knew that but also they loved him and if, if you read john densmore's book writers on the storm they had a huge affection for him and when he wasn't pissed all the time and wasn't off his head on whatever he was a really likable bloke but you know rock stars believe their own publicity lots of times as we know and, <laughs> And um, they're not disciplined enough to be able to lead the sort of life off stage that will give them sort of longevity, not just in music, but in life in general, and allow the band to be more effective. And like the band couldn't tour towards the end because Morrison was on charges and, and, and venues wouldn't book them because of Morrison's behaviour. Well, that's not fair to the other musicians. You know, they're all working musicians. But they, um, they uh, just before. I think they recorded L.A. Woman, or maybe just after they'd recorded L.A. Woman, I can't remember which, they um, uh, they had booked, like, two... Uh, they were booking a tour, 
to ostensibly, you know, road test the LA woman material. Uh, and that's, I think the first night, I can't remember where the first night was. The second night was in New Orleans. Um, the first night, apparently, from all reports that I've read, went fairly well and was the, you know, the one night that I think Riders on the Storm or LA Woman had ever gotten played in a live mm. context by the band. Uh, New Orleans, um, the second night, uh, Jim collapsed on stage and the rest of the band just knew he was fragile and they thought they made that decision very generously on his behalf to say right we're, we're over as a touring band let's just yeah. concentrate on the studio and as you yeah. say they're working musicians and they yeah. could have done with the income and, and, and mm. you know the, the chance to perform in front of an audience but their, their friends well-being meant more to them and that's great if you read John Densmore's book that, that, all, that all comes through and mm. they had a tremendous affection for him but mm. they had to put up with his um, his, his behaviour and his behaviour nearly caused LA Woman not to get recorded at all, which we'll come to in, uh, in mm. just a few moments. All right. Um, I think we'll um, pause for another break there. Uh, and after this next break, Bill and I will um, talk about LA Woman in uh, some detail. Uh, you're listening to Love That Album. I'm coming to you live and in living color. Speak to you, the American people. A podcast called Silver and Gold Daddy. And you know that the American dream, Dusty Rhodes, knows how to bring home the gold, Daddy. And just like Henry Silver, sticking Barbara Boucher's head inside a sow hanging from the ceiling. Silver and gold will stick it to you, stick it to your ears, stick it to your mouth, your eyes, your nose, daddy, and all points in between. They'll take your listening pleasure and stick it between a sow's carcass hanging from the ceiling, daddy. Silver and gold, we talk about movies and shit. Find us on iTunes or silverandgold.com. And we're back. Thanks very much for uh, listening. Uh, Morris here, Bill there, and um, we're talking this podcast episode about The Doors album, LA Woman, on its 40th anniversary. Uh, before we sort of like launch into the uh, album proper, I wanted to sort of point out what I thought was a, a, an interesting contrast, certainly for me and probably for a lot of other people. Uh, their two high points were the bookends of their career, the first album, and the last album. I mean, there's some great moments in between, undeniable. But um, but you know, the, just imagine your 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 debut album starting off with a track like "Break On Through." I mean, that was an exciting song. Um, and you know, they, but it, it was diverse. It was cabaret. There was a whole Brecht thing of um, whiskey uh, bar. Uh, whiskey bar uh, uh, singing a song as long as um, uh, the end, which you know we we associate now so much with apocalypse now uh, and destruction, and yet you know from what I read the the lyric before it sort of gets to the whole Oedipus complex thing, um, you know, is just a simple story about him uh, about Jim Morrison writing about a breakup with uh, uh, with his girlfriend when he was in high yeah, school, yeah, or so. yeah. but you know it. it 
forever in our minds it'll be associated with the psychedelic era or with uh, Martin Sheen losing it in a, right. yeah. in, a, in a hotel room in, right. the, in the beginning yes. of the yeah. apocalypse now. Um, so, but there's quite a progression, an interesting progression from you know, the experimentation of the debut album to what is really uh, an, an equally brilliant album but a far more straightforward blues album by, um, by the end. Well, that's because the producer that produced all the other albums wasn't part of the album, Paul Rothschild. He was there right from day one. Mm. And maybe he, more than anybody else in the Doors camp, was frustrated um, by Jim's unreliability. Um, his drinking um, was at its height at about the time of the demos being played for Paul Rothschild of L.A. Woman. And Paul Rothschild knew that it was going to be another one of those albums, maybe like Morrison Hotel... Um, that took a long, long time to um, to complete. Took nine months to make. Their first album took ten days to make. Mm. Morrison Hotel must have been like pulling teeth for, for Rothschild to get Morrison to record the vocal. If you read any any history of the making of, um, of Morrison Hotel, it was really, really tough going. So when he starts to hear some of the demos that they've written for LA Woman, he didn't like any of them, and he said famously to. Um, might have been to Bruce Botnick, who was the same engineer on um, on all of the records. That um, the song about the killer on the road sounded like cocktail jazz to him. He said, "If that's the best you can come up with, there's going to be another one of those periods where it's going to be just too hard." He said, "Look, I'm just going to have to walk away." And he said to Bruce Botnick, "Look, I'm just tired of all this. You, you can do it. You've worked with them all the way through. You know, you and the boys do it. And I'm just going to walk away." And so Botnick, who was quite a different sort of character to Paul Rothschild, had a more gentle approach, which, which doesn't say anything against Paul, because he had to do all the hard work of getting Morrison. The other were okay, it was getting Morrison to turn up and, and do the vocals properly or whatever else. So Bruce Botnick goes to the other three members, and, and the other four members of the band, and, and says, look, Paul's not going to be staying this time, but why don't we go back to the rehearsal room where we recorded the first album, just get some, um, some remote equipment, Go back to the rehearsal room where we recorded the first record. Just do a simple blues-based album. When, when, when you start doing your songs in in, um, in pre-production, we won't do ten takes. We'll just wait for a good take. We'll hang on to it. And I thought that was a fantastic idea. So mm. it was a much happier sort of atmosphere prior to the actual recording of the album. Mm. And the album, when you consider that Morrison Hotel took, uh, took ten months, took eight weeks. So it was similar, like you say, to the first one. Lots of the songs had a blues influence. Um, John Densmore's drumming, you mentioned his jazz background before. He admitted to playing, and we'll talk about the songs in a few minutes, he, that he copied an Art Blakey drum roll that he hmm. heard on so many Art Blakey records. So it was a pretty rootsy sort of album. Lots of blues references, a cover of a John Lee Hooker song. And um, turned out to be probably one of their most successful albums musically. And- does uh, the Densmore biography say anything about uh, how Paul Rothschild reacted to the finished album? Did he actually? I can't remember now, mm-hmm. but there's, I'm sure there are books where where Rothschild would, would have been pleased for them because he liked them also. He had enormous affection for them, but it was going to be too hard, you know. And he he probably suffered more than anybody else during the making of Morrison Hotel because of all the, the stoppages and the whatevers that went on that we don't even know about. So I can imagine. You know, someone getting frustrated and saying, look, I'm just going to have to take a break. Maybe his health was faltering, I really don't know. But he would have been pleased because he liked them. He really liked them. And so when he would have heard what Bruce Botnick and, and the other blokes in the band had done with LA Woman, I'm sure 
I'm not sure, but it'd be unlikely for him not to have applauded what they've mm. done. Is there any record of uh, what um, the uh, the founder of Electra Records, their record label, Jack Holtzman, uh, what he thought of it? Oh, there would be. I, I can't quote from it, but yeah, of course he would be. There's, there's a history of Electra Records you can get at the, at the library, and, and there's lots of pages on the making of a woman, and I think Holtzman is, is quoted on believe us if it's about all the recordings of Electra so he has something to say about it I'm sure but everybody would have been pleased it's a great album mm, mm. alright so let's talk a little bit about some of the songs uh, from the album uh, it's uh, it certainly has a really strong opening um, in uh, what's more of a, a riff based song bit of, you know, the band getting into a bit of a, uh, a funk blues based groove there uh, so, uh, the opening song is the changeling and um Lyrically, it's, uh, I, you know, I, I guess, everyone's a Monday's expert, as uh, Mick Thomas would have said, and you know, hindsight's a great informant, but uh, I guess there are those who uh, might have said that the changeling was a, a pointer to uh, you know, Jim telling his band members, if not you know, necessarily the worldwide uh, you know, Doors fan base, that um, he was thinking of moving on. Uh, I'm a changeling, see me change. I've, I've lived uptown, I've lived downtown, but I've never been so broke that I couldn't leave town. Could be. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's he, he, you know, trying to say, well, look, you know, I'm, I'm not telling you yet, but I'm going to move off to Paris with Pamela course on. And, but, you know, uh, I, I, as much as I love the fame and I love playing with the band, um, you know, I can, do, I can do other stuff. But Maybe you did refer to that. And musically, it's an interesting song because... It's got a really strong R&B feel, as you just mentioned. And Robbie Krieger, Robbie Krieger's guitar, he borrowed from a James Brown horn line on a James Brown recording. Mm. So he just copied that line on his guitar, and that was his nod to that sort of music and to his great love of R&B music on the changing. Mm. Uh, next song on the album is actually... Um, uh, for, for an album, I think, that was mostly Morrison-composed, uh, this is uh, one of I think the only uh, Robbie Krieger compositions but what a song a great it was I think the first oh maybe first or second single off the album Love Her Madly which I know is played a lot on uh, Golden Oldies radio nowadays but deservedly so I think it's a wonderful tune um, I guess you know straightforward straight ahead love song but um, uh, Morrison had shown that as much as he could you know sing songs about the killer awakening before dawn and <laughs> Uh, he, he could also put out a uh, he, he could really put across with that beautiful baritone of his uh, a, a love song and um, I, I don't know if this is uh, Krieger's song to his wife but Morrison certainly gave it a uh, great voice there it was the obvious choice for a single mm. and um, did what they wanted it to do got him on the radio kickstarted the album mm. became a big single all around the world including Australia yeah. um, then I, I, I was just reading very recently they had um an article about the 40th anniversary of uh, the album in, uh, I think it was Uncut magazine, going back a couple of months, and they said that as part of the um, part of the sessions, they devoted a whole day to just doing blues songs, nothing else, like down dirty blues, you know, be they covers, be they originals, and uh, the first of uh, the songs on the album to be taken from what they call Blues Day was. Uh, been down so long. It's interesting that it's sort of uh, on the album that it, it precedes um, Cars Hiss by My Window. They're both recorded on Blues Day and yet they're both very different um, the way they're presented. So Been Down So Long is 
probably as down and dirty as, as they got. Very gritty blues song. Krager's got some marvellous slide guitar in there. Uh, Jerry Sheff of uh, Elvis's TCB band at the time has a, it really holds the whole band, holds the whole song down perfectly on the bass. Um, and uh, you know, gone is Morrison's baritone in that song and he's just really belting it out. Fantastic tune. Well, the line was actually taken from a blues song by Furry Lewis in the late 20s. The phrase, uh, been down so long and it looks like up to me, mm. was borrowed from a blues song. So there, there's a strong um, connection there. And the inspiration for the song was actually a book written by Richard Farina, who was a folk singer uh, in the 60s, married to uh, Joan Boyes' sister. And the novel was called uh, Been Down So Long It Looks Like Up To Me. And so Morrison had read the book and somebody maybe had mentioned that Furry Lewis had recorded or had written a song that had that line in there. So altogether, those things were... Um, was stitched in and it became yeah, one of the most appealing songs on the record mm-hmm. I wondered, I was sort of uh, contemplating before you mentioned that whether um, I guess with the um, his appeal uh, against the uh, the Miami conviction still hanging over his head uh, and all the pressure that you know, a lot of it brought on, on him by himself but um, you know, whether the, uh, the pressure of that had gotten to him and um, whether, whether yeah, that was a, a genuine sentiment that he felt about, or whether it was just a, a play on words, oh, well, no one's going to tell us. No, not now. Maybe write to John Densmore. Who not know. Um, and yeah, the following following song on the album, "Cars Hiss by My Window," uh, another blues number. Uh, the the pent up aggression of uh, "Been Down So Long" uh, dissipated here, but um, but just yeah, very nice mellow thing with uh, Densmore playing some brushes and. Uh, really lovely ending with Morrison using his voice to mimic um, the guitar and the harmonica. Yeah, very mm. clever. Mm. Very clever. Um, I'm wondering, should we go into LA Woman at Solomon? Because that's next on the album, but then again, I guess the two centerpieces of the album are LA Woman and Riders on the Storm. No, we'll, we'll talk about LA Woman for right. a bit. Anything you want to you want to start off on there? Um, well, it's a clever song, and... Um, John Densmore said about Alan Woman that uh, they cut the demo in half for, for that change the mood from that sort of glad to sadness bit in the middle and then in the middle part Jim comes up with a phrase he wanted to repeat over and over and since it contained the black slang word mojo for sexual prowess John Densmore got the idea to steadily increase the tempo back to the original speed a la an orgasm so the song was a very sexy song and of course the music um, repeats, Jim repeats a line in the music that says Mr Mojo Rising, which is actually an anagram of, of the words Jim Morrison. Mm. So altogether it, it's a song about sex and uh, musically it's interesting because of the dynamic in the arrangement, the soft part, the slow part, and um, and Jim chanting that line that um, he's done a gram of his own. Mm. Uh, I remember uh, it was in the mid-80s when... Um there was a, a compilation videotape uh, came out called uh, um, was it Dance on Fire? It was a compilation of uh, all the Doors video clips and I think Ray Manzarek had gone and directed uh, uh, what was then a new video clip for the LA Woman's song and uh, it's it, sort of unusual because it sort of at first it looks like a bit of a kitschy collage of uh, lots of women who are supposed to represent what an LA woman looks like 
uh, and then it's mixed in with uh, a tale of murder. You see a guy who looked to me a little bit like Harrison Ford um, uh, tailing some woman and then uh, as he's getting close to her has a knife switchblade <laughs> pull up behind his back. Uh, but um, yeah, I'm wondering whether there is... You know, d- does uh, Manzarek know something that we don't about this being a tale of murder? Um, but um, yeah, I mean, you, you read through the lyrics and once again you know, there, there, are, there are possibilities that point towards the way of... Um, uh, Jim's either you know, unhappiness with his life or unhappiness with his life in LA um, there's uh, the, the, the lines are you a lucky little lady in the city of light or just another lost angel in the city of night um, was that his impression of Los Angeles don't know who knows um, but uh, yeah there's uh, pointers in the way of just Jim's disillusionment with LA possible either that or maybe I've just got too much time on my hands <laughs> <laughs> um but um, yeah, look, the uh, 40th anniversary edition. Uh, it's interesting. I was mentioning to you before we started recording this, Bill, that there are uh, a number of songs on on the uh, 40th anniversary edition that have a few extra seconds of um, uh, of uh, music there, you know, just to make it a little bit more complete. And it's probably most notable on the introduction to "La Woman." So before. Um, before uh, Krieger's distinctive guitar styling starts off, you hear for about 10 seconds of him playing uh, um, a very uh, atonal version of uh, what sounds like God Save the Queen. <laughs> um, I'll, have to, I'll have to play that. I'll, I'll, I'll stick it in here in the podcast when I'm editing. Here it is now. What did you think? All right, good. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it, it's... it's um, as you say, yeah, a very sexual song, um, and uh, yeah, it, it is quite clever how that Mr. Mojo rise and just yeah. sort of working its way up through to the peak. But it, it certainly sounds like a band that's really enjoying itself. On, oh, I thought on that so. Track. I that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that completes what would have been side one of uh, the original vinyl copy of the album. Um, side two uh, starts off with uh, "L'America." It wasn't actually probably not one of the songs I've cared for the most on the album. Is that one that you like? Oh yeah, I, I do like it. Um, the, the L is short for Latin America or, or Central America or Mexico or Morrison said anywhere south of the border. And there's there's some tricky um, uh, lyric connections there. There's references to money, which he calls beads, and grass, which is gold as in Acapulco gold. And the lyrics and the lyrics say. Uh, took a trip down to America to trade some beads for a pint of gold. Yeah. So that's a, that's from what I read somewhere where he's just he's just being tricky and putting in uh, drug references so that the censors wouldn't recognise them or, or whatever. And when when they were making the album, uh, the Italian filmmaker uh, Michelangelo Antonioni came to the studio looking for music to use in his new movie called uh, Zabriskie Point. Mm. The movie was a shocker, but the, the soundtrack was was terrific. And um, the story was actually about America set in the 60s and Jim suggested L'America uh, to Antonioni trying to explain that uh, the song's title referred to um, to Latin America but for some reason or other uh, Michelangelo wasn't interested, didn't get it and um, never got back to them about wanting to use the song but, but you know, too bad. But maybe he missed out on another song that would have been a great contributor to the soundtrack. The soundtrack's still out and about there's some really interesting Pink Floyd music on there but, the but the film is almost unwatchable in my opinion <laughs> in my opinion um, where we go from there Hyacinth House 
uh, is uh, the next song on the album and um, yeah look you know I've heard two different interpretations of this you know on the one hand it's you know, just a straightforward song that um, uh, Jim went and wrote this at uh, Robbie Krieger's house and he happened to have a lot of hyacinths in his garden so he just oh. and the writer does a straightforward song about uh, the beautiful uh, floral floral garden but um, it's also been suggested that uh, it's like the end and, and he does sort of verbally refer to the end at the very end of the song um, that it's based on Greek mythology uh, and Hyacinthus was um, uh, someone who was accidentally killed by the god Apollo during a discus Gavron, competition it's, it's written in the in the uh, Herald Sun so it must be it must true. be right yeah uh, he was killed by the god Apollo who was uh, distraught and wouldn't allow uh, wouldn't allow him to go to Hades the god of the underworld and from his blood came the the uh, hyacinth plant um, and how that quite relates to yeah, uh, I'd like Jim's to think it was the first one where there was some nice hyacinths growing in Robbie Krieger's yeah, backyard but, but as we know as we know Jim did he was very well read and he did know his Greek mythology so that, that we can't disclose that okay disclose we can't discount that oh no, 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 no we were the first there. one is nice no I said I'd just like to think it was something yes. to do with uh, flowers growing in the backyard and that there's a line in the song that says I see that the bathroom is clear I think that somebody is near I'm sure that somebody's here that's a reference to the fact that he actually recorded the vocal in a bathroom mm. in, uh, in their rehearsal studio to get an effect on his voice so that at least we know that that's pretty much what that pretty straightforward to. yeah unless of course uh, Apollo was waiting to use the bathroom mm. didn't think of that a <laughs> mm. um, couple of blues songs follow next on the album Crawling King, King Snake uh, John Lee Hooker. Now, interesting. About would it have been about the same time that uh, uh, Canned Heat was around and recording a lot of their yeah, uh, a lot of their fine material. And they were big. They, they recorded an album with uh, John Lee Hooker, didn't they? When was it? Yeah. Hooker, Hooker and, and Heat. Heat. And they, did, they did a second one. Yeah. Well, was it about the same time? I have to look, look it up. I reckon it would be late sixties, early seventies. Yeah. Mm. And Canned Heat were also a great interpreter of, of those those sort of blues songs and. Mm. And um, the Doors did a great uh, job with calling King Snake, and I think that that would have been a, um, a song that, um, that Jim would have enjoyed doing because they're the sort of songs, not that one. And John Lee, uh, Elvis didn't cover John Lee Hooker's songs, but Elvis covered songs by some of the great blues R&B singers of, of, of that period. People, people like um, Arthur Crudup and, and others. And I think that was Jim sort of giving a nod to. Um, to the sort of singers that Elvis loved to cover because he loved Elvis's music a lot and, and so that, that's what I thought about listening to um, uh, to that song and again it, it just gave the, the, the blues element in the album just um, another just another little bit of authenticity and, and that's the song that John Densmore said in, in his book that he, he he tried to play bits of Art Blakey's um, jazz drumming I can't pick it up myself I don't know what he's doing that sounds like Art Blakey but he said that you just stole a um, particular um, fast drum roll from Art Blakey, who had one of the great bands of, of the 40s and 50s, the jazz messengers, all that. They went on after the 40s and 50s, but right, probably the 70s or 80s, even with different musicians. So there was, there was uh, John just, again, saluting his, um, his jazz influences, playing an Art Blakey piece, and, and Jim Morrison certainly referring to his influences as he loved blues music a lot and love blues artists a lot and it all sort of came together in Crawling Kingsnake mm. uh, Texas Radio and the Big Beat 
Now, a very different version appears of this on, um, uh, in a much shorter and much slower pace on um, a, a live album that got released, I think, in the, in the early to mid-80s, A Live She oh. Cried. Do you remember that album? Why, why was it different to the one on the record? Well, the, the one on, um, the one on uh, LA Woman is uh, maybe not up-tempo, it's not a, a mid-tempo, uh, menacing sort of yeah. tune, whereas um, uh, the version that appears on the live, she cries sort of more like a, I can't remember, it's done as an intro to one of the songs, might have been even an intro to Light My Fire, I can't recall, no, not like that, but it's an intro to one of the other oh, songs, okay, and it's played um, as a really very slow, very low menacing oh. type of tune with, um, with Densmore playing slow brushes on uh, the snare and um, uh, Krieg is doing a lot of uh, stuff with his effects pedals for echo mm. and reverberation uh, but almost two different songs uh, the one but uh, yeah certainly uh, very enjoyable the one on um, on uh, LA Woman it, it's more it seems like it's more of a chance for uh, Jim to recite poetry there's less of the singing and more the poetry yeah well the, the, the song refers to um, see the high powered Mexican radio stations that could be picked up loud and clear in Texas during that time in the 50s have played lots and lots of R&B and blues and both Jim and Rayman and Zarek both heard soul R&B and blues on the Wolfman Jack shows on one of those radio stations that um, was able to be picked up in uh, in Texas and that's what that song refers to mm. and then it follows the cocktail jazz moment of the album yeah Jim Morrison's last recorded performance mm. before he, um, he checked out and it's an interesting song, isn't it? Because the lyric obviously is about, I don't know, either a bloke who picked up hitchhikers or a hitchhiker who's killing people on the road. Well, about squirming uh, like sh- shortly before, um, shortly before he uh, recorded L.A. Woman, he and uh, a friend of his, I'm not sure if it was someone who he knew from film school, had made uh, a film called Highway, and it was about a murderous hitchhiker. Mm. Um, I actually recently saw some of it on a, a documentary that came out, I think earlier on this year, called, um, uh, well, it's got a film about the doors, or a documentary about the doors, directed by a guy called Tom DiCillo. That was at the Melbourne Film Festival two years ago. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, and now you can get it quite easily on DVD. Uh, Tom DiCillo had made a, a great film in the 90s. Called When You're Strange. When You're Strange, yes, yes. When You're Strange, a film about the doors, that's yeah. right. Um, previously, I'd seen a film by Dicello called uh, Living in Oblivion with Steve Buscemi about the uh, hazards of being a filmmaker. Um, so, yeah, great director. And, he, and, yeah, I think Johnny Depp narrated this. Uh, but um, pieces of the Jim Morrison film, oh, I like, okay. go all throughout uh, the film. Yeah, that's uh, th- Throughout the documentary. But, yeah, so apparently Riders on the Storm, it was part of it, is based on the story mm. that... Um, that he filmed with his uh, his art school friend. And Raymond Jarrett mentioned once too in an, interview that, in an interview that I read that they actually got the idea for the music from a 50s hit called Ghost Riders in the Sky that was recorded by one of the dance band singers Vaughan Monroe in the 50s and then covered by an instrumental group called the Ramrods mm. in the early 60s. If you listen closely to the... To if you've ever heard Ghost Riders in the Sky, um, the, the melody of that is, is borrowed quite obviously slowed down a bit but there's a great there's an obvious connection between Riders on the Storm and Ghost Riders in the Sky it's been admitted many times not enough for plagiarism mm. but just that that early 50s hit was an influence on the writing of the Riders on the Storm and um, of course that became a huge hit also and became 
a hit, I think, only uh, the same day as Jim Morrison's death was announced on um, on the radio mm. around the world in um, June 1971, and that uh, became one of the most um, popular songs. And um, it, it did have a, a jazz cocktail feel to it, I suppose, but nothing against that. It's a great piece of music, beautifully played and beautifully sung by Morrison. It's, it's so scary that he's, his voice is fading out at the end. He sings right on the storm very softly as his voice fades away. Because it did fade away forever after recording that song. Look, I can imagine that uh, really bad cocktail bar bands and wedding reception bands could uh, absolutely massacre this song, but uh, with musicians of the calibre of uh, Densmore, Manzarek and Krieger and you know, session player Jerry Sheff mm. on, on bass, you know, which was such an integral part of the song, uh, in my mind, sort of you know, kept kept the cocktail jazz wolf yeah. far at bay. It's it's um, yeah, that that's not a dirty word, is it? Cocktail jazz. You no, know, it sort of seems. Like is that. it? Oh. Yeah, yeah. But uh, anyway, so um, anyway, that's uh, our coverage of uh, "L.A. Woman" by um, by the Doors, their album from 1971. And uh, if you're um, if you're out for a copy, if you, you know, one of the few people out there who are listening to this who don't actually have a copy. And would like to get one. I'm sure you'll find it fairly easily in this 40th anniversary year. It's either just been released or about to be re-released. Uh, probably, no doubt, will have been mastered finally. Uh, so, um, if you don't have any collection, something that you should uh, check out. All right. A um, couple of other things before we go. Uh, if you've uh, enjoyed uh, the program, and I certainly hope you have. Um, please feel free to uh, send me some feedback I should have printed it out I actually had an email during the week Bill from someone from a South Australian radio station who said that he enjoyed the podcast don't be so surprised what did Basil Fawlty say a satisfied customer ought to have him (laughs) stuffed Um, but um, no yeah, that's uh, that's highly gratifying Uh, if uh, you're out there you're listening you enjoy the show uh, even if you disagree you think that uh, the album sucks but you want to tell us you want to articulate why you think it sucks feel free to write my email address is rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au or you can uh, leave some feedback on my blog site which is lovethatalbum.blogspot.com um, if uh, you want to be able to download future editions or download this one again you can get it from that blog from that blogspot site lovethatalbum.blogspot.com uh, you can either listen to it streaming or download it to play on your MP3 player of choice. Or if you type in all one word, no spaces, love that album into iTunes, you should be able to download it from there. And uh, if you want to leave a uh, few words, a bit of feedback on iTunes or send me an email, either one will be highly appreciated. Also, I want to give a bit of a shout out to um, a couple of the other podcasters who are great friends of the show. Uh, a big hello to uh, Terry Frost of uh, Melbourne-based podcast Paleo Cinema. He's a great friend of the show. Uh, thanks for your support, Terry, and uh, great words of advice. Much appreciated. And also uh, to the guys at uh, Silver and Gold, that's S-I-L-V-A, Silver and Gold, uh, which is a, a cinema podcast, a film podcast, run by um, uh, uh, Pickleloaf and Dr. Zom. And I'm uh, also very excited because uh, the next episode of Love That Album, I'll be uh, co-hosting with uh, Dr. Zom. Technology is a wonderful thing, Bill. You can 
talk host podcasts with people who are thousands of miles away. Science fiction to me, man. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, uh, check out um, uh, check out Silver and Gold. Listen to uh, the stylings of uh, Doctor Zom. Uh, he, he's absolutely great. Knows his stuff about film. And in two weeks. Uh, we're going to be hosting a show talking about the Who's album Quadrophenia, which is actually also, by coincidence, getting a uh, re-release. I think they're calling it the Quadrophenia, the director's cut. So it's going to feature the original album uh, plus a whole bunch of Pete Townsend demos. Um, so uh, we'll have a lot to say, not just about the album, because uh, because Dr. Zom is a film specialist as well as a rock music fan. We'll be talking both about Frank Rodam's film of Quadrophenia, as well as the original Who album from 1973, and there'll be a lot to be said about that. And if we uh, go by Dr. Zom time, that should be probably a three-hour podcast, and I'm starting that at midnight. So I don't know how I'm going to do that, but all for your listening pleasure. We suffer for your um, appreciation. All right, anything else that you want to talk about? No, just just thanks for the opportunity, and um, I hope that your listening friends do enjoy what we've done tonight, because I certainly do. Hope uh, we can uh, lure you to come back for another another show. In the well, if the price future. is right, mate. You never know, do you? Oh God, you know, I, I had to go see the bank manager for this one. <laughs> All right, thanks very much uh, for everyone out there who's listened, and thanks very much, Bill, for being here. Thanks, Morris, and uh, we'll see you soon. And uh, hope you enjoy the show. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.